Hi, I'm Ian from Los Angeles. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guests on the program are Tanner Colby and Tom Farley Jr. Together, they've put together an oral biography of uh, Tom's brother, Chris Farley, called The Chris Farley Show, A Biography in Three Acts. Uh, Gentlemen, welcome to the sound of young America. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. It's fun to be here, yeah. Tanner, you were on the show a couple years ago uh, when you did a a similar book with uh, Judith Belushi Pisano, who was uh, the widow of John Belushi. That's right. What was it that drew you to this particular story for for a second book? Uh, It was really, I was kind of led here. Um, A lot of the people who uh, were in John's life uh, uh, were also part of Chris's life and sort of a, a mentor. Uh, role Dan Aykroyd and you know obviously Warren Michaels and and a lot of people uh, behind the scenes at Saturday Night Live and as I spoke to them about John Belushi they said you know John's got a great story but Chris is really the story that's never been told before and uh, it's an amazing story he's a fascinating guy and uh, he's got a rabid fan base that are out there and they they really want to know the story and uh, that would be a great project to do next so I called Tom left left a voicemail on his uh, fax machine in his mm-hmm. basement I think yeah and. Uh, he called me back and we hit it off and decided to do the book. Tom, this uh, you know, you this is your brother that we're talking about. Sure. What was it that made you want to and this is a book that doesn't really pull any punches about his his life and career. Right. What what was it that made you want to uh participate in the project? Well, you know, right after Chris died, um I had the idea of of doing a book uh really more about um uh, just the funny stories. I mean, w- throughout Chris's life and, and afterwards, uh, friends, family, we've always gotten together and uh, really enjoyed just talking about, you know, just telling Chris stories. You know, what you, you know? Could, can you believe you did this? You know, last night or yeah, remember when you did this in the classroom? Uh, so I thought that would be a great book. And uh, when I talked, I actually pursued it, and people said, "Well, you know, that is, but they they want people want to know the full story." So, and I, and I really wasn't ready at that point to to go there. But uh, since then, I have uh, worked with the Chris Farley Foundation, going out and talking to kids. And, uh, you know, when you talk to middle school kids and high school kids, you're, um, you learn very quickly, or, or they make it very clear that uh, um, honesty uh, uh, is, is mandatory. And, you know, they, they demand that. So uh, I got used to talking very frankly about uh, Chris and his struggles and things like that. And, uh, um, so I got comfortable with it at the same time. Saw I saw that, um, uh, people really, uh, wanted to hear the story and they, and they, uh, it's, it was, uh, helpful to a lot of people. Well, I remember when, uh, when Tanner was on the show a couple of years ago, <clears throat> Judith Belushi Pisano talked about how one of the reasons that, that she helped Tanner with writing the book about John Belushi was because she felt like people didn't have a full understanding of uh, her late husband's life because other people had told the story, people who didn't necessarily 
um, understand it. I mean, the, actually, the one of the books, uh, uh, Wired, the the biography of uh, John Belushi, actually shows up in in this book. But it was a, it was a matter of wanting to tell the story uh, herself as as she and and the family saw it. Was was that part of the uh, was that part of the concern for you, Tom? Um, well, it wasn't. I mean, as I said before, uh, I. Um uh, I always knew, and, and even people said in the book, Sandler Spade, is it, Chris was always on. And so uh, the stuff you see on TV and in the movies didn't even hold a candle to what Chris would do, you know, and has been doing, had been doing since he was a little kid, you know, off, off uh, camera. And uh, so I wanted people to enjoy those stories. And again, and then... Um, as time went on, I, I, I felt more like Judy did is, um, you know, he, you know, it, no matter what your opinion was, yeah, he wasn't that funny. Uh, uh you, you know, you OD'd and you took drugs and blah, blah, blah. There was some incredible things about Chris that people didn't know his faith, um, you know, sense of family, uh, what a, what a really cool place we, we, uh, grew up in in Madison, Wisconsin. And, uh, I, I thought, um, uh, that, uh, that might change a few opinions. Tanner, when you started to talk with uh, Tom about uh, Chris Farley and his life, what were the big things that, that you learned as someone who was certainly a comedy fan and somebody who knew a lot about comedy and uh, I'm sure knew a fair bit about the life of Chris Farley? What did you learn from uh, immediately from, from talking to Tom? Well, what I learned immediately, I learned a lot immediately because I actually was not that huge a Farley fan. I skew a little more towards the Belushi years. I hadn't even seen Tommy Boy yet. And so I was really coming at it with a blank slate, which is good, I think. And what I learned right away is that whereas Belushi has this story that's sort of up on a pedestal, no one can really identify what, with what Belushi went through. Very few of us have been the most famous person in America for, for two or three years. Uh, Chris's story... Uh, is much more on a human level, and it's it's much more about his relationship with his father, uh, his religious faith. Uh, he believed that God had given him this talent to make people laugh, and he was here to bring joy to people's lives. And that was a really sort of earnest, driving motivation for him, more so than a lot of people get into the business, which is sort of like self-serving ambition and... Uh, and, uh, you know, that's their key motivation. For him, it was completely different, and I realized that this was a unique story that that I was going to be uh, enthralled by. Tom, why do you, why do you think, how and why do you think Chris Farley decided to become a professional performer? Uh, lack of other uh, opportunity, job opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, uh, um, it, it, it was incredible. And I tell, uh, as I said, I tell the story a lot to kids. Is uh, You know, we grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. It was all sports. You know, you were, you were a guy, you, you did sports. And luckily, Chris was very um, athletic and enjoyed that. And, um, but when he got to college, um, there wasn't a football team at Marquette. And so he didn't uh, do those. Uh, it didn't have those opportunities. And uh, halfway through, he said, I, school isn't for me. You know, it's not, not, not my deal. And, and uh, a, a professor, a dean said to him, well, why don't you try out for a play? You're kind of animated and fun and engaging. And Chris was like, you know, guys don't do that. What are you talking about? And so, uh, but he, he did it. And, uh, and he found that this was just incredible. This, this, uh, uh, a whole new persona. Here's a guy that had, you know, body image issues and things like that. And all of a sudden he's somebody else and he's feeding off this energy of people on stage, feeding off the, uh, the audience. And, uh, he, um, 
he thought that was incredible. And so uh, he worked uh, with my dad um, right after college. Uh, again, uh, the only uh, employer that really stepped up and said, and really, I'll, really I'll take you. shades of Tommy Boy. This oh uh, man, absolutely. His, There's his life on the road being a salesman with his dad. Uh, and he really connected with people. He was an awesome salesperson uh, with, with that. Didn't know what he was selling. Didn't know anything <laughs> about you know the mechanics of it. But um, was really really good. But uh, it gave him this time to really um, look at this this world of of improv. There was a little improv uh, um, uh, place in Madison that was uh, that had had some success. And uh, so he, he he tried out for that. He did some stand up at open mics. Failed horrible at that. And so he realized that it's it's really improv. And uh, once he found improv in this little place in Madison called the Ark, um, then it was like, all right, great, got it. Uh, now I'm going out of Chicago. And he went to Chicago. We thought he'd be back in six months. He never came back. I mean, he just loved it. About a year, maybe maybe a little bit more than that ago on the show, I, I interviewed Brian Sack, who was who is now a, a writer for Late Night with Conan O'Brien, has been for some time, some time performer on the show. He he worked with uh, your, your brother at the Ark in uh, in Madison. In Madison, yeah. And um, I, and I remember him describing uh, what it was like to work with Chris Farley when he was just starting in the world of improv, and you could tell that he was, you know, that um, that Brian was just wowed by Chris Tanner. Tell me about what you heard when you talked to people who uh, worked with Chris Farley early on in his uh, in his comedy career. Uh, well, the the most prevalent comment and it goes all the way back to his guidance counselor in high school is that he just was funny if he said hello if he opened the door if he was walking down the hall you just looked at him and you got a smile on your face there was just something about him that was funny he didn't tell jokes or, or necessarily do stunts all the time it's just you walked into the high school cafeteria you l- listened for the sound of laughter out of 400 kids and there was chris farley and uh, brian uh, when he got on the stage with him in at the arc uh, he had a, a great uh, analogy or description that I think is really telling. I put it in the book that you you know people with Tiger Woods they videotape his golf swing to analyze it and see how he gets so much power. And he said you could videotape Chris and you could watch it and look at it in slow motion and you still could never figure out why it was funny. It just was. And uh, so Chris would get up on stage and in the early days and a lot of people say this he was really sort of lacking in technique. It wasn't yeah. until Sharna Halpern got a hold of him down in uh, Chicago, and she she and Del Close really worked with him and said, "Look, don't just get out there and go for a crazy laughs. You're creating a character. You're creating a scene." And they really gave him the tools to take his talent and and start to make something. And once he had those tools, uh, he could step into any scene on the fly. And uh, he just wrote on his feet. He could step into a scene, and he automatically knew where the solution was, where the punchline was, and where to take it. And the audience was just transfixed by him. It was he had it, whatever whatever you call it. Yeah, you know, he was an incredible um, judge of character, and he used that to his advantage. He was also very, he, he took in everything. He was very um, uh, his mind was he he, he, he he caught everything. And so, I mean, even when we were young, if he met somebody, he would if it was somebody that was uh, being mean. And he he was just judge of he understood the character and he would not react to that he would understand it and try to connect with that and change it somehow because he didn't like you know people being mean so he didn't slam them down he he, he would try to 
get into their you know uh, persona a little bit, and it was it was incredible to watch that. And um, and he would just, as I said, he would just make anything funny. I mean, you know, he would take these names out of. Uh, he walked around high school all the time. Nobody. Knew, he was like, you know, he'd puff up his chest, like, you know, you know, how you doing? Uh, 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 nice to meet you. I'm uh, Vic Damone. Nobody knew who Vic Damone was, but Chris, I don't know where he picked up that name, one of my dad's old records or something like that, but he, he made it funny. He would just take these weird things that he would collect out of the air and just make it yeah. funny. We were talking about his his time at the Improv Olympic. Charna Halpern, who was uh, and is the uh, head of the Improv Olympic now called the IO, tells a story um, in the book that I thought was really interesting. She talks about how um, he was when he came to the IO, he was absolutely chomping at the bit to be a performer, and she was basically trying to hold him back and say, "You can't be a performer yet. You haven't been here long enough. You don't know how to do it." It's a, you're just basically saying you're not ready. And eventually she, she says, um, in order to basically, in order to sh- shut him down, she says, okay, listen, if you want to perform, you can perform, but if it doesn't work, uh, you're, you're out of here basically. And he yeah. accepted totally. that bargain right. and went and performed and, and did very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was similarly thrust onto the uh, main stage of the uh, Second City in a very unusually quickly because uh, the show was directed by his um, mentor, Del Close, who had been brought back to the Second City as a kind of guru. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that he, uh, Tanner, as, as somebody who um, you know has, has the long view on his comedy career, do you think that that might have had uh, uh, a negative effect in any way on him? The fact that he was uh, that he was moving so quickly and and he was so far ahead of the curve. I think uh, in, I don't think you could point to that as as a specific you know uh, cause and effect. But I think yeah, moving up so rapidly without ever having to uh, take any you know John Belushi left home and basically was you know supporting himself from the age of fifteen. And, uh, you know, was uh, basically married by the age of 18. And, you know, he worked jobs and came from a very, poor, very uh, you know, working class family. And so there was a lot of taking on of, of, of adult responsibilities there. And Chris basically went straight from uh, working for dad to, you know, uh, TV and, and millions of dollars. And he never went through that phase of just, you know, having a weekly paycheck having a job and you know that that sort of grounds you in in the reality of of what life is it was he just sort of rose to the top so yeah i would say that mm-hmm. that was um i don't know if it necessarily you could say that it hurt him but i, I think he missed out on on uh, a maturation period you could say yeah well he did have an older brother who was uh you know going paycheck to paycheck and i told him it sucked right and so <laughs> i told him don't bother with that <laughs> keep going now uh you know he um he once told me that uh comedy was like you have to be a risk taker, which was weird because my dad was very conservative and it's like, oh, we're, and we all kind of are. But um, he said, you got to be a risk taker. It's like the, the next joke that you say may be the funniest thing in the world or go over like a fart in church and you can't care about that. You just got to do it. And uh, that was this like when Sharna said this to him, um, he, I, I'm not surprised that he said, I'll take it. You know, let's go. I got to take that risk. 
it feels like to me one of the things that made uh, Chris Farley really special as a performer, and especially in his best work. I mean, you you alluded to not having seen Tommy Boy, but I think that's that's certainly his his best film. Sure, um, oh, yeah. is the combination of his kind of passion and drive and intensity and bigness with um, the kind of really small sweetness and tenderness uh, that he displayed on on the uh, on the sort of on the flip side. Yeah. Um, and there's a really uh, there's a part of the book that I, I found really powerful where um, various people are talking about his um, his first big breakthrough sketch on Saturday Night Live, which was a Chippendale sketch in which he and Patrick Swayze um, were uh, in which he was auditioning for the Chippendales dancers, you know, uh, the the male male strippers who wear the little bow ties, and um, there were there were um, there were people on either side of this issue in the book because the sketch was extraordinarily successful. Um, and really established him on the show, which is always really tough to do on Saturday Night Live. But um, Chris Rock uh, talked about how um, he wouldn't be able to do a sketch where the premise of it was, uh, you can't get a job, you're too ill-suited for it because you're black, um, in saying that that was a parallel situation with uh, Chris Farley being overweight. And Bob Odenkirk said something that I, I mean, Bob Odenkirk is, a, is the kind of guy who uh, doesn't mince his words no. about comedy. But he said, um, I didn't like the fact that the first thing he became known for was that Chippendales thing, which I hated. And I'm going to not say the swear word since this is radio, but effing lame, weak BS. I can't believe anyone liked it enough to put it on the show. F that sketch. He never should have done it. Tom, you were close to you were close to Chris. Do you feel like he he had self consciousness about um, uh, about doing parts and, and particularly in sketch? I mean, the, several of his characters on Saturday Night Live that didn't have a lot of multi dimensionality that that relied heavily on his drive and passion side without his you know uh, sweet and smart side. Yeah, you know, I, I disagree with a lot of those guys. They just didn't know. They're they're um, analyzing Chris in their own, you know, uh, persona, and, and yeah, they wouldn't do that, of course. Uh, Chris, though, since early day, I mean, I've seen him. You know, uh, all he he Chippendale's sketch was. I've seen him doing it since he was ten years old. I mean, in the in the living room, just kind of you know, doing all the stuff. And then when we were uh, in college, you know, the band would go on break and the dance floor would clear off. And all of a sudden you look up and there's Chris doing this thing with the spotlights on and people were hysterical. Um, uh, he would do anything for a laugh. I mean, we, we, um, we always, he was, I always, I say in the book, he was our wind up toy. We'd say, Chris, go do this. And he wouldn't think twice about it. He, of course he'd do it. Yeah, I think a couple people have said in the book that Chris, you know, like I said before, he he believed that uh, laughter was uh, one of his priests said he believed that uh, comedy was a ministry uh, to help people, uh, make people laugh and make their lives better. And so I think there was a little bit of self consciousness there, but if it would be funny and if it would make people laugh, then he'd go through the self consciousness to the other side of it, to where uh, you know he. Uh, he would be accepting of it. And I think a lot of the writers on Saturday Night Live said that, that if he, if he could get a big enough laugh and if it hurt him just a little bit, it was okay because that was making other people happy. Worth the and price. It, it's yeah. not a neediness thing. 
it is a generosity. One of the quotes that, that was really uh, that was really powerful for me to hear was from uh, Chevy Chase talking about coming back for a reunion special or hosting or something like that, and talking to Chris Farley very early on in his. Uh, stretch at Saturday Night Live, as I remember it, and asking him, well, like, how, how do you break your pratfalls? <laughs> yeah. and, and Chris Farley not understanding that that was like a thing you were supposed to do, fall on something so you didn't hurt yourself. Right. Chris would just, you know, fall on the floor. He didn't know that you're supposed to break your fall. So he thought, well, you fall on the floor and, and get a bruise. And that's the price you pay to get a convincing pratfall. He broke more bones growing up than uh, all of uh, the other uh, us other brothers combined. I mean, there's I mean, <laughs> shoulder, you know, collarbones, everything from doing just you know, yeah. all in, that kind of stuff. In fact, in Tommy Boy, uh, director Pete Siegel told me that uh, Chris does all of his own stunts in that movie. If you see Chris fall through a table, run into a fence, uh, hit a door, uh, because they could not find someone Chris's size who was as agile and uh, physically adept as he was. So th- they had no choice. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Metafilter. Metafilter is a community weblog designed to foster discussion among its thousands of members worldwide. Metafilter is online at www.metafilter.com. The Sound of Young America is live in New York City at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater the afternoon of Saturday, June 14th. That's this week, folks. I'll be interviewing internet superstar Zay Frank and hip-hop vlogger Jay Smooth. We'll have comedy from the sketch group Pangea 3000 and music from singer Don Landis. Tickets to the show are only $10. You can find out more, including ticket purchasing details, at sketchfestnyc.com, the official website of our host, Sketchfest NYC, New York Sketch Comedy Festival. While you're on the site, check out some of the other fantastic shows, including past sound guests Elephant Larry, Team Submarine, and many, many more. That's all at sketchfestnyc.com. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Tanner Colby and Tom Farley Jr. Together they've compiled the oral biography of Tom Farley's brother, the late actor Chris Farley. It's called The Chris Farley Show, A Biography in Three Acts. One of the sketches that was uh, that really established Chris Farley as a star and, and remains one of his uh, uh, calling cards is... Um, the motivational speaker sketch. Maybe you guys could tell me a little bit about um, the the various sources that, that this came from and, and how it developed and, and ended up eventually on Saturday Night Live. Well, it was his coach and his dad, yeah. and he would. I'll, I'll take the coach, and then I'll, I'll. Tom, you can talk about dad. He would. They had this coach, um, Joel Maturi, who was a real Midwestern. You know, gut over the belt. You know, Notre Dame grad. Notre yeah. Dame grad, and he would he would get, he would do that thing. He'd crouch down and he'd, he'd shift his belt and pull his hike his pants up and be like, "Okay, boys, we got to get out there." And you know, he'd be giving his big you know halftime pep talk, and and all the the players would would look up, and Chris would be behind the coach where he couldn't see him doing all those moves and crouching and 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 and, and getting him motivated, and uh, and he would take it even at, at camp uh, when he was a camp counselor. They had all the ca- all the cabins would play in this. Uh, like football game called the salad bowl and he would get out there like that coach character you know getting them whipped up getting them motivated and the kids just loved it and the other hat part of the character and a lot of chris's characters on saturday night live and and uh you know senator hal heflin a lot of these 
big meaty midwestern guys he plays that that comes from dad oh yeah dad, dad was the larger i mean he was just um a, uh, you know as large as he was physically he was 10 times bigger personal i mean you just you flocked to him he was just this big booming voice um and uh you know, people just, we still, we were always imitating, not just Chris, everyone, and my friends still talk about, you know, dad coming in the house, you're sitting around in the Farley's house, um, dad coming in, who wants to go to Gimbal's? You know, and my friends were like freaking out, it's like, uh, is he mad? Well, um, I thought it's just a shopping thing. And we were just like, yay, shopping. But dad would just like, he would explode like that. It was just, it was, a, everything was big. And, uh, yeah, Chris always loved, you know, I think because of that, the big guy. I mean, they yeah, always and, compared him to, you know, the, the, the Belushi comparisons are so much, but his his idol was uh, was Gleason. Yeah. Loved him. Loved and, Gleason. And that character, both at the Ark and at Improv Olympic and, and at Second City, that, that character, that guy, he wasn't a motivational speaker, but he was that guy. And he would show up in a million different iterations. He was the coach. He was, you know, the sex ed teacher. He was this. He was that. And then finally, Tom Giannis and Bob Odenkirk sat down with him, uh, sat down at Second City and said, we got to have that character in our show. We got to write a script for that guy. And Bob Odenkirk sat down, came up, he came up with motivational, you know, the fact of being a motivational speaker and the, the phrase van down by the river. And it was just a perfect marriage of Odenkirk's sort of, you know, verbal skills and, and this powerful, you know, locomotive character that Chris had. All right, here's your father. I told you my name is Matt Foley. And I am a motivational speaker. <laughs> now, let's get better acquainted by letting me give you a little bit of a scenario of what my life is all about. First off, I am 35 years old. I am divorced. And I live in a van down by the river. <laughs> Probably gonna go out there and think, hey, I'm gonna get the world by the tail, wrap it around, pull it down, and put it in my pocket. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you that you're probably gonna find out as you go out there that you are not gonna amount to Jack Spot. <laughs> you could just shut your big yeah, I wonder from what I've heard Byron you use your paper not for writing but for rolling doobies and you can do a lot of doobie rolling when you're living in a van down by the river young lady what do you want to do with your life I'd like to live in a van down by the river well you know, and the funny thing is, is Chris, uh, you know, started this practice at um, um, at, at uh, Second City, and, and you'd see it in SNL and in films everywhere. Um, if you knew what you were looking for, um, he would insert little things that. As everyone else is laughing, or at some point when everyone's laughing or no one's laughing, there was one person that was laughing that much louder because there was something that he would insert right for one person. A lot of times it was my dad. 
And uh, but this one, the first time he walked out on Second City with this character, and he did this to me when I would come with, with other characters. He came out and he saw his buddy Matt Foley, who was uh, a, a priest, a rugby player uh, on uh, uh, at Marquette with him, and went on to be a priest. And here Matt with this you know collar on, and uh, I don't know what name they wrote in the script. But he came out there and goes, "I am Matt Foley, motivational speaker." And uh, and he said, "Man, I'm going to. This is this. It's going to never change." And uh, here's this, you know, pious guy in Chicago. And uh, uh, I don't know how he lives with <laughs> Father know, Foley to this day can't get a decent email address because every permutation <laughs> Matt Foley has taken. Tom, can you think of a time when um, when your brother uh, had a comic moment that was just for you or just for your dad? Oh, um, you know, the, holy shnikes. I mean, that was dad's phrase. Um, you know, that was totally dad's phrase. Um, uh, there was, I don't know if you remember it, but there, there was a, a moment in Black Sheep when he walks into the wrong dressing room and it was a bunch of Rasta guys and he's talking with them and uh, it cuts away and it cuts back in and he's delivering a punchline. It's like, uh, you know, Wrecked him, damn near killed him. Well, that was my. That was that was one of my dad's greatest. Jo- it was one of my grandmother's jokes. It was about some doctor, you know, that you know, some guy that went to the doctor, he ate all the stuff and had to have his operate, you know, ate all the stuff. And he was really, you know, his bowels were in a mess. And he's like, and uh, some he was, they were explaining this, and, the, and they said, well, you know, uh, he had to have an operation. So he said, you know, wrecked him, wrecked him, damn near killed him. <laughs> yeah, and so he would say that joke and. I don't think it was funny to anybody. I don't know what it was. Who laughed at that except my father probably keeled over laughing. Um, uh, You're listening to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. My guests on the program are Tom Farley Jr. and Tanner Colby. Uh, They've collaborated on uh, an oral history of uh, the life of uh, Tom's brother, Chris Farley. Tom, when you were looking at this material as it was coming in, and I don't know if you if you were interviewing people with uh, to what extent you were interviewing people with Tanner, but what did you what did you learn about your brother that you didn't know? What what new perspectives did you get on on your brother's life? Um, I don't know what new perspective. What I was really pleased with is that uh, you know whether you were interviewing somebody from from childhood. To um, you know, college, camp, uh, and various stages of his career, um, it was all these same same themes came out. His good friends, the people we talked to, got him, and I was like, "That's really cool." I mean, if some if, if you did that with my life, they would say, "But probably, I don't know if any, everyone would get collectively, you know, who I was as well as they nailed Chris." Chris. Was as I said uh, many times, uh, just exporting uh, Wisconsin and, and our little uh, you know great little town of Madison is like we are who we are. Is the you know here's here's us. Call us what you want. You want to call us cheese heads? Fine. We'll wear wear them on our heads. It doesn't matter to us. And that's what Chris was. He was he laid it all out there, and and uh, so you really couldn't. Uh, it was it was his defense mechanism. Bear it all. When Chris Farley uh, started on Saturday Night Live, he he already had a reputation as kind of just a, a hard partying, fun loving type of guy, and he um, and he basically got a a, a a stern talking to and ultimatum from Lorne Michaels and the uh, other bosses of Saturday Night Live that that, that wasn't going to fly. 
Um, and uh, after going into uh, substance abuse treatment, um, he spent th- three years sober. Um, and the and the bulk of his you know the the peak of his career on Saturday Night Live he was um, he was completely sober. You you actually talk in the book Tom about um, about his first big relapse after that. Yeah. Um, tell me about tell me about what that was like for you from from your perspective. You know we um, it, it, yeah it was disheartening. Um, but it, it, again it was that at that time when. Um, we didn't really fully engage in this problem of Chris's. Uh, my one regret looking back is that, is that is just that we didn't uh, all come together. I mean, one by one, we all kind of addressed our own drinking issues and things like that. But at the time, it was Chris's problem. And so we didn't give it much thought. Chris is working it. He's doing all right. Great. Good for him. Um, we don't really have to be that. You know, we you can slap him on the back, say good job, but that was it. And so when Chris was going through this that night, I was like, um, clear signs. I mean, I look back and it was like, you know, DEFCON 4, and I'm just like, you know, nothing's happening. And uh, so, um, yeah, it, 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 I wish we had been more aware. But um, so, uh, you know, because it's tough when you're going through that. And, and you know, seeing going to this premiere and this, this sneak preview and seeing, you know, after Tommy Boy, just you know, it wasn't it just wasn't there. And I think after those three years, if you saw him during like uh, during those times, he'd be out with his his personal assistant Ted, and you know, Chris was like Falstaff. Everybody wanted to buy him a drink, and he was comfortable enough where he could please the fan by saying, "Yeah, buy me a beer," and you know, say, "Oh, thank you, thank you very much." Oh, well, I'll get to it in a second, and you know, wait for them to walk off, and then he. Slide the beer to somebody else and say, "Here, you drink this." I mean, he was, you know, in in control of his game, and so a lot of people when he relapsed, they just didn't believe it. And uh, as it got worse and worse over those two years, uh, he would, you know, a lot of people I talked to said, "Well, I didn't know that he was, yeah. uh, you know, relapsing," and it was like, "Well, how could you not know?" But it, the picture gradually emerged that. Uh, if he was using, he would isolate himself so that no one would see him using, or he was so insecure in his sobriety that he would isolate himself so as to 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 not face temptation. And so, a lot of people just thought he was off somewhere working on a new movie when, in fact, he was, you know, afraid to to get back out there. And uh, and so I think that that hid the problem from a lot of people. Tom, Tom, when did you um when did you see the problem? Like when did it when did it stop being hidden from you? Well, um, you know, there was always, you know, Chris was just this incredibly funny guy. And um, I just happened to see him like in the college days um, when we would get together. And we'd see, Chris, when Chris was drinking, it says in the book, a couple, many people have said it, he was funny for a while. The Teddy Donaville is, is assistant said that uh, first hour. Okay. The first hour was fun. The second hour was the best hour of your life. The rest of the night was pure hell. And the rest of the night went on for a very long time, yeah. hours and hours. And so it was a long hell. And uh, and you know, and I and I would not so much for me, but I would see Chris around his friends or around other people. And I was very, you know, I I'm I study, you know, I'm looking around and. I could see disappointment on people's faces, or they'd walk away like, hey, "Geez, what a jerk," you know, and and uh, that was painful. And I thought, "This isn't, you know, uh, 
Chris at his best. And uh, but that went over, that went over a long time, and then and then it it went from that existed for a long time, and then it just got. What well, was the night of the apartment the, that you really you said in the book that you really woke up when Aaron called you and you went over to the apartment? Yeah, I mean this was uh, yeah after um, uh, one of the seasons uh, or Christmas break or something like that, and uh, she said, you know, can you come down and. You know, Chris had a, a rough night, and I came in his apartment. He went from being this, you know, sober, this kind of college guy, this, this Bluto character in college, and 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 at Second City too. He got sober, and he got a, a neat, beautiful apartment, neat, neat free. And I came down, and the place was trashed. I mean, just trashed, and he, and it was, and it's like this, you know, this is. Uh, I mean, Chris, you know you know those three years he had the knowledge and he had success and for for all of that to have have him jeopardize all of that in one night um i knew that that was out of his control then were there any times that you felt like his life might be in danger um he didn't have a wife actually your life i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm kidding um uh um well i knew i knew it was just a you know uh he's he was playing with fire um but uh, the problem is, is that, um, you know, like all people with addiction uh, and, you know, and, or drinking problem, even myself, is, is you look at, you can always point to the people that, um, that are still alive. And, and like my, my father, um, you know, uh, as big as he was uh, and as much as he drank, um, you know, he was still alive. And so we you'd always like, you know, what? You know that you, you cling to those things, and so. Uh, um, but I, I, what I, what I was worried about more with Chris, and I told him many times, is like, you know, Chris, I just didn't like him seeing with in in just with unsavory people. I told him, I said, Chris, you love humor. You love being surrounded by people that have humor, enjoying their lives, and sharing that. When you're doing drugs and stuff and drinking, you look around you. With these, you know, these hangers on and the, you know, and the, and the, you know, the glad handers with the, you know, buying a beer. Look at those people. Do they care about you? Do they care about humor? Or do they have joy in their lives? Are they funny people? No. It's like you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta draw the line. Everyone isn't, you know, good, and you can't change that. And you, you know, you gotta get out of those group. Those, those. You gotta get yourself away from those. And that's what I really. Uh, had more of a fear of war. I just didn't like to see Chris among those people. And Tom, you had left Wisconsin and, and come back and were working relatively recently. You know, you're a successful businessman and so forth and so on and so forth. Um, what led you to, um, what led you to leave, leave your job and uh, uh, go to work at the foundation uh, and on this book full time? Well, I, I started the foundation, you know, uh, right after Chris died. Well, you know, it, I was out in New York. I had, um, um, you know, I had, you know, this, you know, marketing career out in, with financial services. And, you know, um, I learned some great marketing um, uh, skills and uh, great experience. But there was, you know, it was just kind of, there was really no passion there. After 9-11, like every New Yorker, it was like, you know, I felt like, well, I, not, what do we do? What am I doing with my life? And so I started, I said, I'm going to try and take over this foundation and apply my 
um, marketing communication skills to it. And I built this thing, um, how, you know, talking to kids, uh, using humor as a, as a tool and using improv and uh, to help them develop these tools uh, to resist peer pressure. And I got really passionate about it. My wife turned to me a couple years after I started that, and she said, when did you get all creative? It's like, I, you know, I found when I was really passionate about it, I, it, it, the best of me came out, just as Chris found when he hit the stage for the first time. And uh, it was a re- re- you know, revelation. And so, you know, I, 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 that's what I've been doing ever since. I've, I've loved... Uh, uh, building the foundation, uh, I, I went back to Madison. I moved my family back to Madison from New York. Um, worked uh, for a while with the uh, convention bureau, uh, marketing you know, Madison, which I, you know, which I had this deep love for, and I, I had the same sort of emotional attachment to that too, and that I was very successful there. And uh, when the book came out, I, I said, I gotta get, I, you know, I, unfortunately, I've got to choose between a career or at least getting this book you know, off the, off the, um, off the, off the uh, ground and, uh, and see it through to its end. So I'm at this position now where actually I'm going to starting up a consulting firm in Madison to do more of that teaching, you know, organizations and companies, how to, how to get that, how to connect their strategy to their vision and their, and their brand. So you guys have been, um, touring, touring this book about at least the last couple of days and, and talking to people about it. And, um, you've obviously been working on it for a really long time and asking people about uh, what Chris Farley meant to them. What, what do the people? Um, what do the people who didn't know him? What does he? What does he mean to them? I think the people who didn't. Interestingly enough, uh, we wrote this manuscript for a, a publisher that is no longer in business. So we took the manuscript back and sold it again. And the editor who bought the manuscript had no idea who Chris was. Uh, she just read it uh, cold. Uh, she had never seen Tommy Boy. Literally didn't know the name Chris Farley. Um, and she sat down and was so moved by the human story, uh, his relationship with his father, his relationship with his faith, um, his his motivation to, to help people. And she bought it on the strength of that uh, rather than the celebrity. The celebrity, obviously there's tons of great you know celebrity gossip and behind-the-scenes stuff for, for comedy fans. That's all in there. But uh, it's just an incredibly powerful story that really, you know, blew me away and and changed my perspective on a lot of things as I was writing it. And I think a, a lot of people, most of my friends are a few years older than than your typical Chris Farley demographic. They like him, you know, they they enjoy Tommy Boy and they enjoy the motivational speaker, but they didn't know really that much about him. And they they come to me and they say, you know, it's just a heartbreaking story about a really really good person who who struggled with the things that we all struggle with on possibly a, a grander scale. But I think everyone who reads this book can see something of themselves in uh, Chris's motivations and his aspirations and uh, maybe look at themselves and address some of the struggles in their own life. Tom, you uh, you present uh, your brother's life to young people who... Uh, many of them may not even know who Chris Farley is. Many of them may know him from, you know, from seeing Tommy Boy or Black Sheep on Comedy Central. Um, what kind of reactions? What kind of reactions do you get from kids to that story? Well, uh, it's it's twofold, really. Um, there, there, it is nice that um, a lot of kids they it's they turn twelve, thirteen, they do rent Tommy Boy, and the the recognition's there. I mean, I, I and you know, I, I spend most of my time in Wisconsin, so there's. Uh, 
you know, everyone, there's, a, you know, at least now, if the kids don't know it, the parents do. Yeah. And, uh, and they, but I was actually surprised when we started looking at, uh, there's, you know, there's actually more Chris Farley fan groups on Facebook than there are Saturday Night Live fan groups on Facebook. Wow. And I've been, you know, calling through and, 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 and we, you know, we've been getting in touch with them to promote the book and so forth. Most of the people in those groups, a lot of them are, you know, freshmen and sophomores in high school, which would have made them six, seven years old yeah. when Chris died. So they're, they're finding him as they, you know, it, Tommy Boy really is, assumes that, you know, like, like Spinal Tap for, for my generation or Holy Grail for, for the generation before that. They find it in high school yeah. and middle school and they love it. And they, and now with everything on YouTube and, and, you know, he lives on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, but, you know, with the foundation, you know, I, I, that's just a stepping off point. It's, you know, when I started doing this, I started doing, going to high schools really as a, to deal with my own grief and talk about the struggles and, and lessons. And, uh, but as a marketer, it was amazing to me that, you know, in that first introduction and first couple of seconds, I had this room full of teenagers completely, um, I had their intention. You know, all of them like leaned forward, and it's like that doesn't happen with teenagers, particularly talking about heavy subjects like prevention, substance abuse. So um, that's just the launching point for where we immediately go into this positive, talking about positive, using humor, um, teaching them improv and how to how to maneuver through um, stressful situations with their, in their peer groups, and that more than anything is such a, you know, such a difference from how they're talked to about, about these issues. You know, they're scolded, they're, you know, told how to behave, um, just say no. And, and it's not, they're taught, you know, taught, taught like it's math class. I mean, it's, and, uh, so it's that more than anything that really, um, they just love. Well, Tom Farley, Tanner Colby, thank you so much for being on The Sound of Young America. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Tanner Colby and Tom Farley, Jr. Together, they've compiled the oral biography of Tom Farley's brother, the late actor Chris Farley. It's called The Chris Farley Show, a biography in three acts. That's our time for another Sound of Young America podcast. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our intern is... Chris! You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. And if you have thoughts about the show, you can email us directly at jesse at MaximumFun.org. Visit our website where you will find the blog, uh, the forums, the other shows, all kinds of amazing stuff. I am really tired, so I'm going to stop talking now. We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America. <laughs>